We've been in a series on the commands of Jesus. And as we approach the end of those, I think it's good for us to, to take a step back and kind of review some of them. Some of them are hard. And uh, how well do we remember them? And the ones we remember, <laughs> how serious are we are actually obeying them? That's the question. Are we going to actually obey them or just hear a series of sermons on the commands of Jesus and think, oh, well, that's more things to, to disobey. There are several that I could highlight this morning, but I picked out a few. And uh, one of them comes in Matthew 21, 18 through 22. The sermon's entitled, The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And this is an interesting event that happens. Folks who criticize Jesus usually pick out one or two of these experiences and say, this doesn't make sense. How do, you, how do you explain this? Listen to this. In the morning, he's on his way to the temple. In the morning, he was returning to the city. He was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves only. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you faith and never doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it will be done. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So it's a passage on faith, isn't it? And yet he is frustrated that a fig tree didn't bear fruit, and so he curses it and it withers. What does that mean? And what do some of his other hard sayings mean when we try to apply them to our lives today? Let's bow together. Father, as we come this morning to reflect on Jesus' teachings, most of which we have watered down and diluted so much <laughs> that they don't even resemble his original intentions any longer. And so help us take a fresh look at what he said in its, its original intention and not rationalize it away, but seek to live it out, whatever the cost. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Jesus said and did many things over the course of his ministry that make us downright uncomfortable. And I want us to think about some of them this morning. Will Rogers, you remember the homespun comedian who had so many profound sayings? One time he said, it's not the part of the Bible that I don't understand that gives me so much trouble. It's the part I do understand. It's not the part of the Bible I don't understand that gives me so much trouble. It's the part I do understand. People criticize Jesus for these stories in the New Testament. They point to many of them and conclude that Jesus did some strange things things. And there are at least three stories which depict Jesus as doing something strange, at least by the world standards. And it seems to me like we listen so much more to the world than we do to Jesus. And there's that constant tension between them because the world is shouting in one ear and Jesus is whispering in the other ear. And so we are constantly leaning toward the world and Jesus would have us lean toward him. <clears throat> what are some of the stories? <laughs> well, the first one is this cursing of the fig tree. 
He's passing by this little defenseless fig tree one day. He sees that it's barren. It aggravated him because he's hungry. He'd gone out of his way to approach it. And in frustration, he curses that little tree. Never again would it bear fruit. In fact, we learned that it withered up, <coughs> excuse me, right there on the spot. And if you look at the parallel passage of this in the Gospel of Mark, it tells us further that it wasn't even the season for the fruit to be ripe. So how could Jesus be so angry with a little tree when it's not even its time to be ripe yet? <coughs> Sounds unreasonable, doesn't it? Sounds strange. Let me just say from the outset that I think I understand this passage because in Mark's gospel, he sees the tree going into the temple and then coming out, the tree is withered. And I think what he's trying to say is that this fig tree symbolizes the temple. All the activity of the temple, it has every outward vestige and appearance of success and bearing fruit. And yet when Jesus goes into the temple, he finds it barren and fruitless. And so that's why he pronounces the curse on the fig tree, because to him it represents everything that the temple is not doing. It's a symbolic act, a prophetic act, where the fig tree represents this temple that's so busy and so active and yet accomplishes nothing in his perspective. The second story is in Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27, <coughs> where Peter is asked by some tax collectors if he's going to pay the temple tax. Matthew 17, 24, they come to Capernaum, the collectors of the half-shekel tax come up to Peter and say, does, your, does not your teacher pay the temple tax? And, and Peter, without really knowing, says, uh, I guess so, yes. And when he came back, Jesus spoke to him saying, what do you think, Simon, from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tribute? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, and what Jesus was referring to, I don't have to pay temple tax because sons don't pay, the prince doesn't pay a tax to the king. I'm a son of God. I'm a son of the king, so I don't have to pay tax. So the sons are free, however, not to give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. How many of you, when it came to paying taxes this last week, went fishing and looked and hoped to find some money in the fish's mouth to pay your, your taxes with? That's not going to happen. It was found by Peter casting a hook into the water, catching a fish, opening its mouth, and finding enough money there to pay the taxes for two people. I don't get it. If I were Peter, I'd say, Jesus, while we're at it, let's keep fishing and stockpile a little money and get wealthy fishing. It just doesn't make sense. And then there's a third story that we Baptists really struggle over because it's the story of turning the water into wine and the miracle of Cana, the wedding at Cana. John 2, 1. On the third day, there was a marriage at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was also invited to the marriage with his disciples. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said, woman, what have you to do to me? My hour is not yet come. In other words, 
why are you coming to me to fix everything and do a miracle when it's obviously not time for me to, to take that, that action? So his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Six stone jars, they weren't little stone, they were large stone containers that the Jews used for purification. The Jews had a lot of baptismal ceremonies, a lot of baptismal rituals that they went through when they rendered themselves unclean, either coming in contact with a dead body or eating something unclean or coming in contact with a Gentile. Any of those things would render them unclean. So they always kept a lot of water available for baptism ritual purifications. And Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. He said, now draw some out and take it to the steward of the feast. So they took it. When the steward of the feast tasted the water, now it had become wine, did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine is brought out, because after you've had a lot to drink, it doesn't really matter how good the wine is anymore, does it? Of course, y'all wouldn't know that. You wouldn't know. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. A great wedding in Jesus' day lasted about seven days, believe it or not. You thought one wedding lasting a couple hours was expensive. Well, the thirsty guest had drunk all the wine, and it was becoming a major source of embarrassment and contention for the host. It was customary for the wedding guests to offer a wedding gift of some sort, so perhaps on behalf of himself and his disciples, Jesus turned well water into wine. Now, I've heard Baptist preachers try to correct this and say, this, this was not real wine. This was unfermented wine. But I've done some research on this, and I'm sorry, in Jesus' day, wine is wine. It just is. And so we, we struggle with this. Healing those who are lame, yes. Opening the eyes of the blind, yes. Cleansing a leper, yes. Feeding hungry multitudes, yes. We approve all those honorable activities, but turning water into wine, Jesus, you're testing the, bat the metal of which we Baptists are made. My problem with Jesus, I guess, is this. He's just always doing the unexpected. And we, so often in the eyes of the world, see it as being a little strange. We size him up. We, we think we've got him neatly pigeonholed and compartmentalized and we've drawn comfortable boundaries around him. And then Jesus, if we really hear what he says, if we really see what he's done, he's, he's continuously bursting out of our confines and surprising us. If we get right down to it, if we get real honest, we might just admit that we think Jesus shouldn't have said or couldn't have done some of the things the Bible tells us he did. We want him to get us from earth to heaven one day, but as for his particular teachings, they are hard for us to live out. There's some things he said that we have concluded he just couldn't have meant them the way they sounded. Pray without ceasing. Seriously? He who would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Come after me. 
That sounds serious, doesn't it? Be ye perfect. Me, perfect? Are you kidding? And so there are these sayings of Jesus, which if we take them at face value, are incredibly mind-boggling. And so what we've done is we don't take them seriously. There are some sayings of Jesus, and I just picked out four for us to think about this morning, that if we, if we really listen to what he's saying, it will reorient everything about our lives. Foolishness in the eyes of the world. But didn't Jesus say so much of what he did in the eyes of the world was foolish? He did what was foolish to confound the wise. And so we need to listen. The first thing I want you to see is how much Jesus cares about money. He just doesn't care about money. Think about this for a minute. He is the son of God. He is the son of the king of kings. He is the son of the creator of the universe and he could have had anything he wanted, anytime he wanted it, anywhere he wanted it. And this one gives us rich materialistic Christians fits because Jesus discovered the joy of the simple life and he told his followers, go and do thou likewise. He was constantly warning against the danger of riches because he knew that too much riches could interfere in your trust and faith in God because you would be prone to, to de depend upon them rather than upon God. And so we said that it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And we have rationalized that. I've actually heard preachers say, well, the eye of the needle is this small gate that enters into the temple. And if, if a camel gets down on its knees and scrunches up real tightly, it can squeeze through that hole. I haven't seen that anywhere. I think when Jesus said the eye of a needle, he meant the eye of a needle. And he was talking about how impossible, how difficult it is for rich people to get into heaven because we, we've lost our faith in God taking care of us. And we become prideful and we think we can do it all by ourselves. He told a story, a parable about a farmer who had a bumper crop one season and his barns were already full. So what did he do? He tore down those old barns, the smaller barns, and he built up bigger ones. And, and then in the parable, Jesus says, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And literally the Greek there says, this night they require your soul of you. It's a passive tense of the verb. And what I think he's saying is that this night they, your possessions, require your soul of you because instead of you owning them, some transformation took place and now your possessions own you. And that's what happens. The more we have, the more we worry about losing it. And so we look at our portfolios, we look at our stock market, and we bite our nails and we try to anticipate what's going to happen and, and, and how we can just continually to stockpile more and more. If this doesn't make you uncomfortable, then you're not really listening to Jesus. I remember I had a, a man in my last church, and I've talked about Harry before. His, his family had a salvage business, and uh, auto salvage, metal parts, whatever it was. They, he said, we just made a living out of what other people threw away. And they made a good living, but he told me one time, he said, Brother Wayne, I'm glad I don't have much because I don't have to worry about losing it. Because the more you have the more you worry. 
And Jesus wanted us to depend on him. It's hard for us to admit that some of the richest people in the world are those that have the least in terms of worldly possessions. And so we push to succeed and we sacrifice living life in order to accumulate more. And Jesus comes to us and just pulls the rug out from under us. Let a distraught, hectic, divided, insecure, fearful society answer that. I don't know, maybe Jesus knew what was best for us after all. The second thing he did was he always challenged the way things are. And I think this is what ultimately got him killed. Because he was always coming into conflict. He was always challenging the powers that be. He didn't care. Why does he always have to rock the boat? You know, I'm the kind of person, I I would prefer to avoid trouble and noise and threats and division and controversy, and I just want everybody to get along. And you remember there's a passage where Jesus and Peter and James and John go up on this mount and a transfiguration takes place and and Elijah and Moses come to them and, and Peter says, Jesus, let's build some tabernacles here. Let's build some some tents here so we can live up here. And Jesus said, no, Peter, we've got to go back down in the valley because we've got work to do. We've got to make it a better place. You see, the world was not, and it still is not, something Jesus could live with and be quiet about. There was corruption and pride and jealousy and hatred and and sin, and all of that had to be confronted. And so Jesus wrestled with those things his entire ministry and he met it head on on a little hill called Calvary. The world was sure he had been silenced, but God had other plans. And so he was constantly challenging the way things were. He was constantly taking on the authorities, the religious authorities, the powers that be. And that makes us uncomfortable. You remember... John Kennedy, I think in his inauguration speech, he said something like, some people see things the way they are and ask why. I see things the way they never were and ask why not. Do you remember that? I was trying to think of how Jesus would paraphrase that today. He might say something like, I know how things are supposed to be and I'm not going to quit until they're like that willing to give my life for that to happen. The third thing Jesus did, not only did he not care about money, not only did he challenge the status quo, the third thing he did was he just outright rejected violence. Do you remember the the passage in the uh, Garden of Gethsemane where Uh, the the soldiers of the chief priests come to arrest Jesus and Peter pulls out his sword and strikes off the ear of the slave of the high priest. We find out in Mark his name is Malchus. What does Jesus do? While he's being arrested, he could have incited a riot. He could have started a rebellion, a revolt right there. He said, Peter, put your sword up. And he took the slave's ear and placed it back on the side of his head and healed it. Jesus rejected violence as a way of achieving the good life. 
I don't know how we as a nation, I mean, nation, America is great today because we have strength. But once again, if we have too much strength and we rely on that and not on God. Can you imagine our country surviving very long if Jesus sat behind the desk in the Oval Office? Can you imagine if Jesus gave, was running for president this year and gave a campaign speech where he said things like, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them also the left. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with them willingly the second mile. If someone choose, chooses to live by the sword, he will also die by the sword. With philosophies like that, Jesus' political career in America would be a disaster. Jesus wasn't the one who said, speak softly and carry a big stick because he knew if you carried a big stick around, eventually somebody would test you and you'd have to use it. And so today, we're caught up in this, this struggle to, to maintain a strong defense, which is wise as America. And yet at the same time, to hear these words of Jesus that say, violence is not the way. And then he goes, he takes it one step further. And he says to love your enemies. It looks good on paper, but it's almost impossible to enact. Love not only each other. I mean, everybody loves those who love them. Love your enemies as well. Love those who hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, who's my neighbor? Well, the person who lives next door to me? No. Someone asked, who's my neighbor? And Jesus, you know what he did? He went on to tell them the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the man who was robbed and beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. And the priest went by and the Levite went by. And who was it who went by the third time? It was the Samaritan. And he was the one who bound up his wounds and placed him on his donkey and took him to the inn and provided for him there. And, and said, I will return, and if, if I owe any more, I will pay, you, pay up the balance. And Jesus said, who's the neighbor? And they said, it's the Samaritan. It wasn't somebody who lived near this man. It was somebody who saw a need and met it. And so love your neighbor as yourself just means love those who have a need, wherever they might be. Love them as yourself. Now, how in the world are we supposed to love our enemies? I remember the WMU had a prayer conference here a few months ago, and the lady who was speaking said, how many of you pray for ISIS? And I mean, I froze in my seat. It had never even crossed my mind to pray for those people who hate us so much and who are bent and determined to destroy us in our way of life. But if we prayed for them, maybe we could learn to love them and if we could learn to love them, then maybe they wouldn't be our enemies anymore. And so I read the Bible and I am shocked. I tell you, I've been reading it for so long now, some of the edges on it have kind of rubbed smooth. And it doesn't surprise me anymore because I figured out over the years how to how to explain it away, and how to rationalize it, and how to 
how to think, you know, that might have worked in Jesus' day, but that wouldn't work today. And yet, Jesus tells me, if we're going to follow him, it's going to mean a simple lifestyle. We're going to be confronting sin and not backing down. It's going to mean choosing a, a way of peace instead of a way of violence. And it's going to mean loving everybody, even our neighbor who lives on the other side of the world who has a need. And these things sound simple and abstract, but when they oppose my propensity for money and power and violence and hatred, I'm scared. I'm frightened because they contradict what the world is telling me. And I am so prone to listen to the world. And yet I have to take them seriously because they're modeled by the man who lived the greatest life who ever lived, who loved me, and who ultimately went to a cross when he had done nothing wrong to die for me. That's the strangest thing of all, isn't it? It's because that death and the resurrection that followed that I am willing to constantly struggle and repent and turn away from the power of the world and turn toward the power of God. And in so doing, I have to accept Jesus and his lifestyle, his ways, his teachings, his values. Because, as the choir sang, he is the way and the truth and the life. And if you want to come to the Father, you have to do so through Him. And it's a path that can be frightening, and faith is going to be required. But in light of all that He's done for us, in reality, it asks of us so little. And so when you read the Bible, and when you think about these commands, let the words penetrate your heart the way he originally said them. Let them speak to you. And don't just wash it aside because you're so familiar with it and you've already figured out how to live with it and compromise it. Think about what's this radical teaching Jesus is telling me to do if I'm to follow him? And what do I have to do if that's going to become reality? Pray with me. Oh, Jesus, help us to see that when you do strange things and when you say strange words, you involve us with them. Help us get to the place where we can return a curse with a blessing, where we will go the second mile willingly, where we will love and pray for those who hate you, where when someone strikes us, either figuratively or literally, rather than lashing out in retaliation, we will turn the other cheek and love them. That's impossible. God, we can't do that. And so we pray that you'll help us and that you'll give us the strength in our weakness that you'll be perfected when we acknowledge our need 
Help us, God, do what we can't do, living up to these commands of Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen.